Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. I want to start just by asking whether anybody in the room has a favourite book of the Bible. And you are allowed to. It's not like having a favourite child. You could have one. But is there anyone who would say, this is my favourite book? Go on, Stephen. Jonah. Luke's Gospel. Yeah, any others? Judges. Okay. Anyone say Psalms is your favourite book of the Bible? You're going to be very disappointed as a congregation (laughs) because we're looking at Psalms today. Uh, Psalms is actually, if if you survey Christians broadly, and uh, Bible Gateway, a big Bible website, did this and looked at what is the most popular book of the Bible in terms of people clicking on it, accessing it, going to it. Psalms came out top of the list. So this is the perennial favourite for Christians. And Ellen Davis, who is an Old Testament professor at Duke Divinity, says the Psalms are the single best guide to the spiritual life currently in print. So you want a good spiritual life? The Psalms are a great place to go. And I'm hoping over these few weeks over the summer, we're going to convince you that the Psalms are great. And so some of us are going to start falling in love with this book of the Bible. What we have, just to to set a bit of what we've got in the Psalms, if you open your Bible somewhere near the middle, there's a good chance you hit Psalms. It's a big, chunky book, 150 chapters long, and each chapter is a different song. So it doesn't flow. It's not like each bit follows on from the next in a progression. These are different songs that people would sing. And they gave shape to the worship of ancient Israel. So you'd get... Uh, psalms to sing at times when kings were crowned, or different songs that you'd sing maybe when the sacrifices were being made in the temple, or songs that you'd sing when you were on your journeys, and you'd sing these songs together as part of your worship. And, And these were so integrated into the whole religious, spiritual life of ancient Israel that these would have been the songs that Jesus sang. So as Jesus was worshipping his father, what we see in the Psalms would be the words that he would be using time and time again to express his faith and his love and his worship for his father. These were uh, the the matter of Jesus' own spiritual life we find in the Psalms. And it's also become the hymn book of the church. So through the centuries since, Christians time and again have gravitated to the book of Psalms. And I want to give you three reasons why it's become such a popular book. So number one is this. It's a book full of absolutely raw emotion. I don't know how how you find the ups and downs of life uh, and the types of songs we're sometimes asked to sing, how they're all kind of polished and plastic and everything's fine. And sometimes you're like, but I'm feeling this. I want a song that just expresses rage or despair or abundant joy or confusion or whatever you're going through in a moment in time, you find it all in the Psalms. And sometimes, I don't know if you ever have this, when you've got some stuff going on and you want to pray, but you know the words that you want to pray are a bit 
unsanctified, a bit questionable. You know, I'm feeling this. Am I really allowed to say this? Am I allowed to say it to God? Am I allowed to pray this stuff that's so raw that I've not worked it through? It's just, it's edgy. In the Psalms, you get it all. And it gives you permission to bring the depth of feeling, whatever the feeling is, to God. Second reason the Psalms are so popular is because of the visual imagery. Now, in a lot of the Bible, it teaches you about God through concepts and through ideas. But the Psalms do it through pictures. So it's not just that God is reliable and God is steadfast, although he is. It's that God is the rock beneath your feet. It's not just that God is caring, but the Lord is my shepherd. And you can picture it. And the, the vivid picture sometimes drives it home in a new way. Do you remember a few years ago when there was all the stuff going on about uh, the boats coming across the Mediterranean and they were overcrowded, full of um, asylum seekers and migrants and um, the conditions were being explained by lots of people. But it wasn't until that picture of a child washed up on a beach hit the front page, the front page of pretty much every newspaper. The picture spoke in a way that sometimes the words don't. And we find the same is true in the Psalms. And then thirdly, it's a book that's focused on Jesus. You see, the Psalms are quoted in the New Testament uh, more than 70 times and scattered all throughout the New Testament. So 25 of the 27 books in the New Testament quote Psalms. And consistently they're saying these words are all about Jesus. And those writers didn't make this up. They're not like looking for links that are not there. Jesus himself invited them to look at the Psalms as a book about him. In fact, after he'd risen from the dead and he was meeting with his disciples, Luke 24, he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He saw the Psalms as a book all about himself. So don't be fooled by the fact that the Psalms were written centuries B.C., these are psalms that were written about Jesus, that were written for Jesus, and in many cases that even contain Jesus' own words prophetically revealed in advance. So that's what we've got this summer, and each week over the summer, we're going to be diving into a different psalm, getting a different song, a different flavour of what is in this book. And today we're going to look at Psalm 63. So if you're following along in your Bible or on a Bible app or something like that, Psalm 63 is where we're going, and I've got it on the screen as well. And what you see in the Psalms, the first thing you get is a little, before verse 1, you get a little inscription. And they are part of the Bible text. They give us the context of what's happening. And this one says it's a Psalm of David. So David was the man who wrote this Psalm. And it says, when he was in the wilderness... Of Judah. Now, there are two times in David's life that he was in the wilderness. One was after he'd been anointed, so he was going to become king. He wasn't the king yet, and the existing king, Saul, was really jealous of him and started hounding him and chasing him, and he had to go to the wilderness to hide. That was one time. Second time was later in his life. He's already become king, but now he's blown it. He's sinned against God. He's sinned against Bathsheba, and his kingdom starts to unravel, and his son rises up against him and seizes the throne, and he's got to go and hide again. 
Now, we don't know which of those two times it was, but either way, he's on the run. He's got enemies who are after him. It's a difficult time for David. And Psalm 63 is what he writes. So I'm going to read it. Let's follow along and let's enjoy David's words. Oh God, you are my God. I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there's no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands and call on your name. My soul is satisfied as with a rich feast, and my mouth praises you with joyful lips. When I think of you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadows of your wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be prey for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Interesting psalm. When I read it, what jumps out to me is a repeated phrase that comes up three times, my soul. And this is a psalm all about the soul. And he says three things. Verse one, he says, my soul thirsts for you. Verse five, he says, my soul is satisfied as with a rich feast. Verse 8, he says, my soul clings to you. He's reflecting on his soul, and we're going to look at those three things today. Now, when I say soul, I just explain what I mean by that. It's a word we bandy around. A human being is body and soul. So there's the physical part of us, and there's the non-physical part of us. Think about the creation account. You've got Adam formed from the dust of the earth. That's saying, hey, we're made physically. But then God breathes into him the breath of life. And it says that he became a living. The word in Hebrew is nefesh, but that's what we get here. It's soul. He became a living soul. So he's physical. But then God breathed into him and he became more than physical. And we're talking about this not just physical part of us, the deep core of who we are. When we speak about the soul, that's what we're referring to. And the first thing he says about his soul, we saw it in verse 1, my soul thirsts. I don't know what comes to your mind when you get this image of thirst. I, I, I bet we've all experienced it sometimes, of being really, really, really thirsty. For me, the story that jumps to mind is uh, when I climbed Ben Nevis with my dad. And we did it on a really uh, hot summer day, and we took a bit of water up there with us. Nowhere near enough water. Uh, ben Nevis is a long way. It's quite a, a, a tricky climb for people who don't do that kind of thing often. Uh, and we went up there, and then we had to walk down again. And on the way down in the sun, we were absolutely uh, thirsty. We just wanted more water, but we didn't have any. So we had to press on in the heat and keep going, and it was exhausted. And I re remember us getting to the bottom and just finding a news agent and just going in there and uh, buying massive drinks and just downing them right there, because we were so thirsty. It actually doesn't take a lot to become thirsty. It doesn't take uh, that much exercise or that much time in the heat. 
Uh, it's not like something like, even like food or sleep, where we definitely need it, but we can go a bit longer. Thirst, it comes on us quickly if we don't have the water we need. And David, doubtlessly, was physically thirsty. He was out there in the wilderness of Judah. Now, the wilderness would be hot. It was a place where there wasn't much water at all. So as he uses this image, he says, as in a dry and weary land where there's no water. It's not like he was kind of plumbing the depths of his imagination for an artistic image to use. He was in a dry and weary land. There was no water. He was experiencing thirst. And he's saying this physical thirst that I'm experiencing in this wilderness, actually that reminds me of something. That reminds me of the depth of my being, how much it longs for God. So I'm longing for water in my body, but something deep in my soul wants God in that same way. I don't know if you found it, but I, I found often the, the times in life that are difficult, that are challenging, that there are needs before us. One of the ways that those times can be used in our lives is to remind us of how much more we need God. So the times that we're isolated and alone, they don't just remind us that we need other people, but they remind us that we need that greater relationship with God. The times that our bodies are suffering remind us of the fact that our soul needs to be well in the Lord. The, the things we go through point us beyond themselves to this relationship with God. And David, he knows that his soul is thirsty. Can you identify with that? Can you identify with this? The, the inner core of who you are, just looking for something, longing for something, wanting something, whether it's satisfaction, peace, contentment, however you put it, something inside me needs something more than I have. Life can be exhausting, can't it? It can be frustrating, it can be isolating. And there's all kinds of things that we might think, oh, I'll, I'll try this, this will sort out my life, this will quench the thirst, and... It rarely seems to work. Where David was in Judah, the nearest sea to him would have been the Dead Sea. Now, the Dead Sea was about 400 metres below sea level, and the water there was 10 times as salty as the ocean. Now, imagine that. Imagine you're parched with thirst. You're looking for water. You see it in the distance. You head over and say, yes, water. This will quench my thirst. And you take a sip of this water, and it's just salt. Can you, can you just get that in your mouth? That would be uh, so frustrating, so unsatisfying, because I thought I could quench the thirst. It hasn't worked. So much of what we look to in life to quench us is just like that. But David knows that his quench is thirst in God. His um, thirst is quenched in God. My soul thirsts for you. And so he says in verse 2, this is his application. My soul's thirsty, so what do I do? I've looked upon you in the sanctuary. I'm thirsty, so I'm going to the sanctuary. I'm going to the place where God's presence is. That's where I'm going to quench my thirst. I want to do a little experiment now. So, um, Stephen, thank you for being my volunteer. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, you are. <laughs> Stephen, what I have here is a glass of water. Please to drink it, please. Tell, tell us how you found that. It was water. It was water. Yeah. Um, the process of doing it, was that an easy thing to do or a difficult thing? It was uncomfortable doing it in front of everyone. Was it challenging? No. No, not particularly. So, you can sit down. Oh, 
All, all I wanted to show by asking Stephen to do that is quenching thirst with water. It's not particularly complicated. It's not a difficult thing to do. You're thirsty, you take a drink, you quench your thirst. As long as you've got access to the water that you need, you don't have to jump through hoops, you don't have to do lots of difficult, complicated things. All you have to do is go and drink. It's actually the same when it comes to the spiritual thirst, the thirst that our soul has. It's not complicated. It's not a difficult thing. We carry this thirst, but as long as we have access to the water, it's not like you have to do 20 complicated religious acts and jump through hoops. If you want to quench the thirst of your soul, David knows it's simple. I've looked on you in the sanctuary. I've come to God. And when we come to God and experience God, that's what quenches our thirst. Here's some promises from elsewhere in the Bible. Isaiah 55, how everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Isn't that a great invitation? You're thirsty, they come to the waters. You that have no money, come, buy, eat. You're invited to the waters that will quench you. On John 4, when Jesus is speaking to the woman beside the well, he picks up the same theme. He said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, pointing at the well, will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I give will become in them a spring of water, gushing up to eternal life. Or right at the end of the Bible, Revelation 21, he said to me, it's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I'll give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. It's a promise. It's not something you have to earn. It's not something you have to work for. If your soul, like David's soul, says, I'm thirsty, then Jesus says, come and drink. I'm here. I can quench the thirst within you. Let's go back to our psalm. Let's pick up in verse 5. Because the image changes now from the thirsty soul to the feasting soul. We're moving from water to food. He says, my soul is satisfied as with a rich feast. He's not talking about a bare-bones meal or a survival ration. He's not saying, look, I'm out in the wilderness and I've just found enough food to get me through the day. He's saying, I'm picturing a rich feast. I'm picturing a banquet. In fact, I don't know if you've got the same footnote in your Bible that I have, but where it says rich feast, it says the Hebrew means fat and fatness, which I think is just a brilliant phrase. How was your meal? It was fat and fatness. It says something about the kind of meal you've had. It's lavish, right? It's good. It's, you're going to feel like fat at the end of that meal. It's not like, I've done this before, I've been to a fancy restaurant where they make the food all elaborate and well-flavoured and you, you come out of it and you're thinking, you know what, it, it was tasty, but I'm going to the chippy on the way home because it didn't fill me. Have you ever had that? Well, David's saying this is like a rich feast. This is both good but filling. This has completely satisfied me. Back in June, Pete and Becky were hosting barbecues at, at your house, and um, we, we were there for one of them. I'm sure some of the rest of you were as well. It was great, because you, the food's ready, and then you get a burger, you get a sausage, you get some salad on your plate, and you eat it, and then you look over, and hey, there's more. There's more meat ready. I'm, I'm going to go and have seconds. I'm going to have another burger, another sausage, and then through the afternoon, keep picking at it, and then you get home, and you're like, oh. I'm so full, I can't move for the rest of the afternoon. That's the kind of feeling you get after a good, filling 
meal. Or, or think Christmas Day. You've just eaten your Christmas dinner, all the, all the trimmings, Christmas pudding, everything. That chair that you sit down in for the afternoon, and you're just like, I just want to sleep now. I've just eaten so well, and it's so good. That's the picture that he's got. And somehow, David's saying, my soul, when it relates to God, it's, it's a bit like, I relate to God in that way, that I get so full. I'm just satisfied. I'm just not after any anymore. I've got everything that I need. I'm so nourished by God. Now, his circumstances were hard. He was out there in the wilderness, but his relationship with God was strong. I wonder if, for many of us, this might be a missing piece when it comes to how we relate to God. So, Perhaps we know what we believe. We can explain things. We can articulate ideas. Perhaps we know what to do. We know some of the the practices and behaviors that we want to put into place. And we get involved. We do things. We we give. We serve. We build community. All of that is great, and we should carry on doing that. I wonder how many of us resonate with this language of David, of feasting on the Lord. Do we know what it is to do that? To be so filled with God, he says, I think of you on my bed. So he's, he's lying in bed, he's trying to get to sleep. And where does his mind go? Go straight to the Lord, because he's so filled, he's so satisfied. So what does your mind go to when it's got nowhere else to go? Well, he says, uh, <clears throat> I meditate on you in the watches of the night. So this would be, different ones of them would have to stay awake for different bits of the night, make sure they weren't going to get attacked. Uh, and so it would be boring, wouldn't it? You'd be up on your own, it'd be dark. You'd just be alone with your own thoughts. You wouldn't have had uh, a book to read, a phone to mess about with. You'd just be there. And what does your mind think about in that time? I'm meditating on the Lord, because he's so filled with feasting on the goodness of God. Do we know what that is? Feasting, it's not a functional thing to do. And there are two ways that we can do things. So I know that a bunch of us from this side of the church are doing the, the Bible in two years and reading through Bible passages every day. What a great thing to do. And hand on heart, right, when I'm doing that, some of the time I'm quite functional. I'm like, right, what's my passage for today? Right, look it up, read it, read it, done get on with my day. But other times, you can, you can feast, you can read it differently. I'm going to dive into it. I'm just going to pause. I'm going to ponder. I'm going to let these words soak over me. I'm going to, I'm going to give thought to them. I'm going to let the benefits of this reach my soul. I'm going to feast on these words. There's functional and there's feasting. Same when we're worshipping, when we, when we sing later in the service. We can sing in a way that's, I know these things are true. I'm going to sing them as true. It's declaring it's good. Function. It's not a bad thing. Or we can feast. Or we can really linger and let the presence of God meet with us in that moment and just draw the goodness from the relationship with God. Sometimes it's it's all about savoring a bite. It's about just slowing down with one little nugget of truth and chewing it around. I want to give you an example of how you do this, right? So do you see in verse 7, he says, In the shadow of your wings... I sing for joy. So you might think, right, okay, in the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. That's great. That sounds really lovely. In the shadow of your wings, I'm singing for joy. Great, and I'll move on. But let's say you just wanted to feast on it a bit more. What do you do? Well, you might start to ponder. The shadow of your wings, it's an interesting image. What, what, what comes to mind? Maybe the first thing that comes to mind is a bird, like a hen, 
or something like that. It's got its wing, it's got its chicks under the wing, and uh, it's protecting them, it's drawing them close. And so you, you're letting that image, you think, ah, so God wants to draw me close. He wants to comfort me. There's something of the presence there and the love there and the affection and the protection of this strong wing. Like a, a bird's wing is strong. Like a, a goose once attacked my auntie with its wing and she had bruises all over her leg. The strength in the, in the wing and, and that strength is there to protect us. Oh, that's comforting, isn't it? That's helpful. And then your mind might race on or Google might race on if, uh, if the association isn't there. But Jesus in Matthew 23 speaks of Jerusalem like that. He says, look, I long to gather you under my wing, just like, just like a bird, just like a hen does with her chicks. I want to treat you in the same way. You're like, oh, wow, Jesus cares for me in that way. And you just think around that more. And then maybe perhaps your mind goes to the story of Ruth and Boaz. And uh, when, when Ruth is a refugee, uh, she's not got any uh, provision. She's not got a community around her. And Boaz notices her. He's like, look, I'm praying. I'm praying the Lord will extend the shadow of his wing over you. So, wow, that's a, a great image, isn't it? When we're desperate and we've got nothing, and wow, the, the God can do that for us. And then later on in the story, when Ruth is propositioning Boaz to marry her, that's the phrase she used. Why don't you extend the shadow of your wing over me? Okay, this is more than just um, care, more than just protection. There's something of intimacy about this. There's something of closeness about this. And so you start to think about that. And then maybe you go a step further and maybe you think about in, in the Old Testament law and they had the Ark of the Covenant. And in the most sacred place of the temple, the Ark of the Covenant was the most sacred item. It was the box that the Ten Commandments were kept in. And on the top of it, they had two statues of angels. And the angels had their wings extended and meeting. And it was called the mercy seat. And when the priest would go in and make the sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins, he'd go into that place and he'd scatter the blood. And where would the blood land? It'd land on the mercy seat, on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, in the space where these angel wings were covering it and where they'd have made shadows. And the shadows of the wings as the place where the blood is scattered. So people are forgiven and people find the mercy of the Lord. You're like, whoa, in that space, wow. So God, uh, I'm singing for joy in the shadow of your wings, in the place of forgiveness and mercy. And so what you're doing is you're just taking this phrase that we found, just a few words in the psalm, you can read it functionally or you can just start to chew it over and let it spark different thoughts and different connections and let it do you good just as you ponder these things. That's what it is to feast Let's jump on there. Let's go to verse 8 in the final bit. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. I don't know if you found this. Like when I read the psalm out loud, the last few verses, whether they sounded a bit jarring, whether it seemed like, hang on, we're in a bit of a gear change here. Because up to now, it's been quite nice, general stuff about relationship with God. And all of a sudden, he goes into verse 9. But those who seek to destroy my life, they'll go down into the depths of the earth. And uh, the end of it, the mouth of liars will be stopped. So what's, what's he talking about here? Often, these are the kind of verses we ignore. We'll, we'll read verses 1 to 8 and stop there. But what he's talking about here is the reality of his situation. He was on the run. There were people who were trying to kill him. There were people who were lying about him. And he's speaking about his own messy situation. When we see verses like these, what they do for us, and I think it's really helpful, 
is they recognise that really hard times come, that messy situations occur in life, that everything isn't all nice and polished like verses 1 to 8, but sometimes we live in the reality of verses 9 to 11, life getting seriously messy. And it tells us that the Psalms are for those times as well. They're not just for the good times. These aren't just songs to sing when everything is well. These are songs to sing when everything is a mess too, when your life is chaos. When you feel like the Psalms are for other people who've got it together more than I have, verses like this shows, no, that's not true. The Psalms are for you. And maybe you're in that situation where you're like, you know what? A lot of what we've been talking about, I can't do right now. I barely made it to church this morning. All I can do, the best I've got, is just to hold my ground, just to cling on. You feel a bit like Mr. Bean on the diving board. I don't know if we've got the image there. Uh, But it's like you're just clinging on before you drop. And that's all you can do. You can't do anything other than hold, hold, hold your ground. It's a little bit different, though. It might feel like that, but actually I think a better image here isn't clinging like Mr. Bean to a diving board. It's clinging more like my daughter, Elsie, when she's doing an obstacle course and a balance beam is clinging onto my hand. She knows if she lets go, she might fall, but her trust isn't in how tight she can cling. Her trust is in the one she's holding onto and the one who she knows won't let go of her. That's what David said. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. He knows that God's got him. He knows he can trust in God no matter what. He knows it might be scary and hard, but just like Elsie as she's walking on that beam, as long as I've got a tight grip of my dad's arm, I can do it. In the spiritual life, that's all we have. Cling on to God and trust that he will never forsake you. Now, no one really likes the idea of being clingy, do they? That's a a negative word. Like, if you hear, oh, that person's so clingy, you're not like, great, I want to spend lots of time with that person. It's just not how we think. And most of us probably find it quite difficult when we encounter someone like that. But in the spiritual life, we need to come to terms with the fact that clinginess is a good thing clinginess to the Lord, that all we can do is just keep coming to him, keep holding on to him, whatever's going on, I'm not going to let you go, God, and I know you'll never let me go. And so whatever I go through, I can be confident because I've got you. Maybe you're in that hard time right now. Maybe you're struggling in life. Let this be imprinted through you. My soul clings to you because your right hand upholds me. Maybe that's a verse just to hold on to in that season. Romans 8, it says, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Your right hand upholds me and nobody and nothing can make it let go. It's an amazing truth. Now, you might be thinking, well, yeah, that's great. That's for those people who are in that hard place right now. I'm not in the wilderness at the moment. I'm not in a difficult situation. Life's great for me. Well, first thing to say is you will be one day. I mean, it happens to us all. We go through ebbs and flows of life. So take it and put it in the bank and have it there ready for when you need it. But actually, I just want to say, if you're in a good place at the moment, 
Actually clinging on to God is sometimes harder when things are going well, when you think you can balance by yourself, when you think you don't need him. Christian writer, podcaster, Jackie Hill Perry, said, I've seen more Christians drift from God when life was a breeze than I have when life was hard. I think she's right. I'd say I've seen the same thing that she has. So I want to challenge you. Whatever your place in life is today, what is it for you to cling to God? How do you do that, even when times are good or times are bad? What does it mean for you to cling to God? This psalm shows us our soul. Shows us David's soul, and I think many of us echo it. A soul that's thirsty, a soul that's longing for something. And he points to where it can be found, to quench the thirst in God. He talks about a soul that feasts. Do you know that God can uh, satisfy you deeply, not just take the edge off a thirst, but he can satisfy you like a good meal. And he talks about a soul clinging to God, even in the hard times, that we won't let go of him. I wonder, maybe there's three images there. Maybe one of them particularly spoke to you. So just ponder on and to pray into and to to feast on this week in your own time with God.